All right. Welcome everyone back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today we have Nathan. I don't want to butcher your last name. Jewett? Yes, Jewett. Perfect. I did it right. Um, we have Nathan on the show. And uh, honestly, I think we should just go back in time for a few minutes because we haven't done this in a while and it's so much fun. And I don't ever get tired. I never get tired of talking about no hard drive days. That's what you just said. We were, we were talking about for the show and you were talking about, I was definitely around during the no hard drive period of time, which yes. is somewhere between, yeah, punch cards. My, my brother was old enough to deal with punch cards, which doesn't even seem, I don't even think, you, can you even call that a computer? Is that really a computer or is that more of like a, mm-hmm. an, an advanced abacus? Technically, it would be a computer by, I don't want to offend anyone's sensibility. Please, please, please offend. <laughs> please. But I remember tape drives in Commodore VIC 20s and 64s and Apple IIe's. And even before that, I worked on a, I was a 3M kid and I was lucky enough my dad would bring home HP 85, which was a really early tape storage, you know, basic, basic computer. And we built my fifth grade science project was a LED RS-232 serial connected light board that would, we, uh, programmed machine code and literally ones and zeros and hexadecimal to yeah, see, you were Pac-Man like the patterns kid. and things like that. So you were like the cool, like, I don't know if it was, was it cool back then? I don't know. But. <sighs> it was pretty nerdy. And in, in uh, <laughs> junior high, I would carry these two boxes of five and a quarter inch uh, floppy disks. But I thought I had the, the hookup plastic because ones, the big right, plastic my dad ones worked at 3M, so I had the diskette hookup, right? So I felt pretty <laughs> like I was hot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now, uh, <laughs> uh, let's go back to fifth grade for a second. So you have this like really amazing science project. What were the other science projects compared to yours? Do you remember? Jeez, there was like the volcano that would kind of... I was just going to say that. Paper hey, mache volcano. My friend Jesse had a paper mache volcano that would kind of fizz over, you know, that kind of thing. Or different uh, pH, you know, water kinds of experiments. Very basic. Fifth and sixth grade, those are basic years. And you had a... And what did you have again? Oh, we did, well, we had an Apple IIe... Or no, this one was driven by the Hewlett Packard 85 um, serial serial RS-232 connected custom soldered LED board, not LEDs like we know now, but single color Radio Shack LEDs <laughs> soldered together. Yeah. Oh, you're bringing and you would run this little line, you know, lines of code and Pac-Man would play on the LEDs and things like that. So it was pretty rudimentary. What do we do with no, um, yeah, but still, that was an amazing, like that project compared to the paper mache volcano. Right. It was I mean, pretty really- hot pretty hot for sure <laughs> and that just, that that grew forward into the bbs era then that's my my obsession with apple II um was sort of the big deal at school we can't move on quite yet i need just need okay. to know, tell me a little bit about your father so was your father yeah. that helped you get into this because you said your father yes. worked at hp my dad well he was at 3m okay so they had access to different computer uh, tools that they would bring home at times Mm-hmm. And so I got to look over his shoulder working on some engineering work. He's an electrical engineer at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was very curious and excited about computers in general mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, just wanted more and more because it was just so exciting and new and creative and technical. And, and I just thought it was amazing technology. I mean, far beyond the calculator, right? It was so new. Yeah. And I don't, 
when I look at my nephews and my nieces and I see that they never grew up without a cell phone, not, not right. only that, a smartphone, to, me, to be honest, um, I don't know, will they ever be able to experience anything like that? I don't know. Maybe certain game platforms are real innovative. It was such a world-changing moment, right? The Bill Gates and Steve Jobs saga and all those early days with Park, Xerox, and all that. I mean, it was such a the birth of IBM, I mean, all as far as in the PC space, right? Yeah. That was just a, a I don't know if you ever have another time like that. It's a, pretty amazing. And I remember... Pretty amazing. Being- it must have been seventh grade or sixth grade getting like, you know, PC catalogs, magazines and, and sure. ordering computers and ordering parts. And then we're like, we were like comparing like who had a bit, you know, who had a tower and a half tower. Right. I was, you know, Do you remember Heathkit? Did you ever hear of those? Uh-uh. They no. were like stereo components that my dad had that I remember frying his favorite amplifier because mm-hmm. I was playing around with, you know, the wrong cables and wires, but they were, they were, you could solder together your own high test stereo equipment and that kind of came in the late 70s and mm. that was a fun time too similar similar line but not quite as advanced as the computer stuff the but the concept of no hard drive just the fact that there was no hard drive what did you do you carried around your box of discs <laughs> <laughs> i remember um building code that had to run in ram uh-huh. and upgrading ram from 64k not mag k <laughs> kilobytes <laughs> to 128 and being like wow now i've got power right yeah now, yeah now i can now i can really throw in and i was building code that for dungeons and dragons type interaction mm-hmm. and and you could you know shop for armor and do these different things That's and it was all running in ram oh. and then you would switch the five and a quarter inch disc mm-hmm. literally while someone was dialed into the computer in real time like that <laughs> <laughs> some, this is going over some people's heads. It's got to be right. right. Um, yeah, the the RAM upgrade. You mean we didn't have to like move stuff around anymore, like auto exec bat? <laughs> I saw. I I googled auto exec bat the other day, and a T shirt came up. It was like an executive bat sitting behind a desk. Awesome. That's hilarious. Um, These are okay. the days of Apple logo and all that, where you could just make four next loops in basic and create graphics on the screen, but graphics were just a line that plotted, you know, on a certain. That was my computer class logo. There you go. We were like, can we hurry up and be done with logo so we can get on to, you know, Oregon trail towards the end of the class. Right. Right. (laughs) I was the guy building Oregon trail. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's a little handheld. You buy a target for like five minutes. Now you buy a kit and you join your, your app development ecosystem and become a rock star in a few weeks. Yeah. The, all right. So what's this? Okay. So moving on. Yeah. Uh, soldering, uh, whatever, fifth grade science experiment to Apple IIe. And uh, wh- what, like, at what point were, were you freed? Your, did you kind of free yourself from your, your fa- overlooking, looking over your father's shoulder and you were kind of on your own? So that was the kind of thing, right? Then I remember the snowstorm when we went to Dayton's, which was a store at Rosedale in, uh, by St. Paul. It was a snowstorm. And I remember it vividly because he charged this Apple IIe computer on his credit card at the time. We weren't made of money. And so he literally went on a limb, out on a limb to buy this Apple IIe. And he always insisted on investing some sort of training or learning process coupled with a purchase like that. 
And so what happened is I got really into the school program and then summer programs and special interest groups. There was a magazine, a periodical called Computer User at the time in the cities. Mm-hmm. And there were BBS as bulletin board systems listed in there. So what I did is I went and found all the ones I could that were uh, appealing to me. And I started connecting directly with the people that had founded those BBSs. Let's go again. How? <laughs> <laughs> I picked up computer user and I connected to their BBS with my Apple IIe. Yeah. And I just reached out and said, I want to know how you do this. I want my own BBS. I want to do what you did. And mm-hmm. there was Captain, you know, Captain Apple. And there was kind of like this underground pirate vibe, not really anything illegal to my understanding, but just a yeah. renegade type culture, uh-huh. kind of an underworld of coders, of programmers, and I wanted to be part of that. And most of them were seniors and juniors in high school or college kids. Mm -hmm. And here I was in seventh grade. So I played up and learned from those people and cloned some of the software approaches and built my own flavor of a BBS software. Um, Back when the letters would just kind of go across the screen like war games. Do you remember the movie War Games? Yep. (laughs) Very basic stuff, but... Um, then I published my BBS and had subscription uh, business started. Again, I was only 11, but people would connect and pay their $5 a month. And my dad put in a separate phone line and they would connect <laughs> to my TUI. And so my dad was out of the picture and I was independent at that point and up to no good in some ways as a seventh grader might be. Wait, wait, you were paying five, wait, people were paying you $5 a month? Yes. Yes, they were. How many people were paying you $5? Not many. I got to tell you, maybe 20 or 30. <laughs> Still, though. <laughs> it wasn't very big because we had no hard drives to circle back. So you're a seventh grader. You're a seventh grader making, making residual income at $150. <laughs> I, mean, uh, I, may, I may need to go back to that business model, maybe. I'm serious. Think about it. I mean, like That's you were funny. charging five bucks a month. Yep. Yeah. Well, that was better than my paper route at the time. I, I wanted to be innovative and creative, and I wanted to learn the software language. It was exciting. Five bucks a month. That's pretty cool for seventh grade. Pretty cool. That's pretty darn cool. Um, <laughs> I mean, my first job was washing dishes, and it was- Me after- too after that, but so nerdy, <laughs> though. It was not seen as cool then. I mean, it was pretty geeky. What was right? cool then? Let's go back to seventh grade. I played hockey. I played drums. Uh, I was a hockey goalie. Yeah. Uh, you know, heavy metal was cool then. Metallica was there and Iron Maiden and all that stuff. And <laughs> that's what was cool, right? But science was also cool. You had the space shuttle thing going on and um, other kinds of things in the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the uh, total side note, we were at my son's baseball game a long time ago and uh, my daughter was talking about something and like sewing, like she, she's talking about sewing. She, like literally you had a sewing machine and this other girl was like, what? Like, who are you? Is this like the 1980s? <laughs> I was like, what? We're old. 1980s was like a long time ago to her. I know. I know. We're old. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on. What, yeah. uh, what's kind of, what was this, you know, so you're, now you're like heading up like, you know, crazy software dev team type of thing. But like, how did you get, for the other listeners out there and for other people that may not, may be younger, they don't have the experience of the dawn of the computer and, uh, you know, messaging boards and soldering stuff on, you know, they may have grown up with a, a smartphone. What, what do people do now? I mean, I'm just curious, like, how did you get where you got and did, did college have anything to do with it? Do you think certifications matter? Um, I took the hard way and my path is not traditional, Phil. 
I, I largely self-taught and, and because I would go to college and I would attempt to, you know, comply with sort of a, an academic version of learning. I found that my learning style was very kinesthetic, very, I learned by doing, and I learned more specifically, I want to learn things I'm motivated to learn and that I can apply practically to what I'm working on. Yeah, that's so because me. because I was building companies and I was doing state of the art e commerce work in the '90s and doing creative design work and flash animation and building Dreamweaver tools and all that kind of stuff back during the e commerce dot com days. Um, I learned about databases and all those things, and because they didn't teach those in school, they they taught they taught more archaic flavors of database, mm-hmm. but they did not have the latest technology. You could get them in higher end certifications but you couldn't apply that knowledge practically in a, an entrepreneurial context without a large capital available and a bigger team and all that kind of thing. So for me, it was finding technologies that I could apply a lot like the lamp stack is a great example where you can use, get an Apache web server for low dollars or free in some places and start building your PHP or your Python code with a MySQL database instance. You can start building apps with that, right? Mm-hmm. So, my spirit grew more along those lines. But during .com, I got enthused about cold fusion and about active server pages and VB script and SQL server. And then that transitioned through PHP. So I tell people, what do you want to learn? And there are free tools or inexpensive tools that you can start building your hello world. Are you familiar with that term? Nope. You build your hello world code. It's your first piece of code on any platform. In fact, I got the opportunity to coach my son who's now 23 in college and he was building his C++ program for class. And he was confused about how the files all fit together. And I said, look, son, we need to build your hello world. And hello world just means you build a piece of code that prints out hello world on the screen. That's mm-hmm. it. Now you've achieved coding, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's very basic. So I tell people, find what you're passionate about and then find the technologies that are inexpensive or free to help you start playing with that. And now you can do app, there are app kits and um, project platforms available. There are gaming platforms and ecosystems available that you can start coding in right away with very little training. And so because I learned by doing Phil, I jump in that way. A lot of other folks want to go the more traditional route. In my experience, I would go through school in college and learn things, but it would be redundant and boring because A, it was irrelevant to my, the way I was applying that knowledge. And B, I knew more, I had more practical experience than the instructors oftentimes. So by doing and by, you know, Google searching your code and learning from communities of people of like minds and like interests, you're going to be ahead of the instructors. It's always like that, I think. I think uh, once, you, once you get out of college and you get in the real world, it's, it's now you get your real life experience. Right. And, and my story is one of real life experience first. Yeah. And I think, I think it might be true for a lot of us. I mean, mine was always working in, uh, you know, all my job experiences and everything is really what translated into what I ended up, what I ended up doing. So I went to college for, um, you know, creative writing Mm -hmm. and yes, I can write a pretty darn good email. Awesome. Some, some messed up and some, and some interesting it articles as well. Uh, but you know, all of my experience comes from, you know, when you got hands on out in the world, right. When someone, Yeah, hard knocks, right? Yeah. Um, so and that's honestly, why I that's always ask that's, certifications. That's why I always ask, like, why some people yeah. are so concerned about... Oh, do you they're, so, they're, so, they're so valuable 
for those that can benefit from the academic learning style. I really admire that very much and envy it even. And again, my path was more of necessity and more of just my the way my biology is. I needed to learn by doing to be motivated and excited. And that was what was meaningful in learning for me. And the way I learned about agile software development processes and methodologies, for example, was not because I set out to go get certified in agile. It was because I would build software and there was scope creep in that software back in the dot-com days. And there were literally millions of dollars on the table involved with projects for e-commerce projects and scope was out of control. And we used to say things like, there's a train out or the bridge is out ahead and management is telling us to to drive the train faster and code faster and build in more features. And we're saying, there's a school bus of children across the tracks now. Can we stop and scale our infrastructure, right? Uh And and build build this more, um, you know, correctly, more more, uh, traditionally sound and business doesn't work that way. Business wants it done now. There were stock prices to support. There were customers to sell to. Mm-hmm. You code and you code and you barely sleep. So mm-hmm. that's what I was doing during the dot example of project. Yeah, what was like one of the biggest sure. problems you had to solve? Yeah. Well, we were working with a project. Um, it was an e-commerce project that had Lycos and Uni- University of Minnesota and Digital River integration. And overnight, there were four hours of product data loads coming from Ingram Micro and really big uh, computer parts distributors, just to full circle on computer parts, right? So we're talking about 100,000 plus products, and we're talking about 60,000 plus software titles that are all downloadable through this e-commerce structure. And the e-commerce architecture that I was part of inventing, Mm -hmm. uh, take a lot of pride in it actually, based on if you came from U of M, the store would take on a U of M facade or design, the UI would look like U of M, but it would be loaded with our products and our e-commerce engine, right? Like a white label, kind of like a white label? Kind of like a white label for e-commerce back in the day before it was like Amazon was over there doing books Mm -hmm. and we were doing electronics. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of the same path of site development technology, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's just a classic, I was an internal employee in a company and there were consulting Uh, consultants working with us and project management was a nightmare trying to post it notes all over ginormous whiteboards Mm -hmm. and eight of us sitting in a a, what felt like an airplane hangar in the middle of winter while these three companies merged and it's Mm -hmm. on our eight shoulders to bring this technology live so these sales folks can achieve their goals um, (laughs) while we're coding trying to solve basically breaking the rules in software and I try and stay on the forefront of that kind of technology, Phil. What? So, why did? Why did some companies survive? Some die? You think back in the day, was it all? Just <laughs> I'm just asking from your perspective. Well, since you were in the trenches, to, you were in the similar, trenches back sure, then. So. Sure. I mean, in that particular organization, it was very much about um, the dog and pony show, so that you could raise money, mm-hmm. bringing together three-way merger to try and build that ideal company. Mm-hmm. And um, focusing, I guess, losing sight of why we're in business mm-hmm. and losing sight of the key success criteria, the critical success factors. Um, why, what is the, the key metric that we need to achieve and stay focused on and deliver and, and over-deliver so that we can be a leader in business? I think too often it became about what we could show investors, what um, we could tell, what we could say our title was. 
mm-hmm. what car we could drive, all that kind of stuff instead of really, and I think Amazon wins because they've yeah, got Yeah, I was going to ask you why. Well, because they made it one click. Even back then, they made it one click checkout and everyone else was a follower. Um, they made it super easy. They understood what their, you know, why they were doing it. They weren't focused on the book, right? They were focused on making the customer experience easy because online was a new way to buy. So mm-hmm. they held to that and stay focused on that. And even today, it's about how quick can I get checked out? And I prefer Amazon for my shopping. I don't know about you, but if I can buy it through Amazon with Prime and know that I can rely on the delivery and the shopping experience is super easy and I could read those related items and those reviews, I mean, 20 years later, those are still market leading. Would you agree? I buy everything on Amazon. So I remember those features, I mean, I don't like related Sam's items. Club. I, used to go to were, I don't go sure. to Sam's Club anymore. Right. I, I, and just so you know, I have eight kids. Okay. So going to Sam's Club was a big deal. Is a big deal. Like you have an agile team. (laughs) I know. Believe me, (laughs) I try to get my kids into coding. A couple of my kids are. I'm like, hey, you know, start learning all this stuff that I never learned. That daddy didn't learn. Uh, But um, you know, come on, make me. You know, make some millions. (laughs) Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Yeah. (laughs) Anyways, you know, I don't buy toilet paper from Sam's Club anymore. Sam's Club got shut down and it was a whole, you know, like you had to reserve half your day on Sunday to go to the kind of bulk buying place. Don't do any of that anymore. Right. Toilet paper well, shows up on my doorstep. Sure. And the features that do that for you now, Phil, for me to get my Amazon video with one click and I don't have to re-enter my credit card, those are the features to beat and that we were all chasing as techies back then. But to full circle it through the Agile, just to finish that thought, um, we had scope that was changing faster than we could code. And this is still, still an issue in software and web development today. Mm-hmm. And so what is now called agile was merely uh, spiral versus waterfall methodology in software development lifecycle. And so we designed ways to manage scope iteratively in a spiral instead of finish this, then do that, finish this, and six months or a year out, you can change the scope. So we, were, we weren't called agile then, but we were developing and changing the scope every six weeks or every month. Because we just had to try and keep up with the rapidly changing, you know, you have multi-stakeholders like a, a VP of marketing, mm-hmm. a COO, a CEO, yeah, um, yeah. and they're all, they have and investors and customers, mm-hmm. they all have competing objectives. Mm-hmm. So how do we get them on the same page? And then how do we redefine and maintain sanity of a development team so that we can drive and get a success? Is that and even I, possible? Because a lot of times I find the software developers... I'm completely stereotyping you and everyone that's in the software development world right now as these kind of like super smart, arrogant dudes that sit behind the scenes and really should be maybe more in charge than they are, but aren't. I don't know why. Kind of everything that you just described seems like we've got this, you know, like you said, executive What's what's the wrong executive management team, uh, right. board of directors, whatever it is, these yep. different competing factors, right, that are driving the business, which is great. Why aren't the software guys that as well, or why aren't they? Yeah, I think you'll find in smaller businesses and startups, you really do have more of an embracing. You'll have a founder that's half of the company that is a tech person. 
Um, in in uh, other organizations, you'll have a leadership team that includes a CFO and a president and a CEO and maybe a marketing VP, maybe an HR person, people that are trusted leadership that, that don't have an IT seat at that table of influence, right? And a lot of you can tell when somebody's experienced with their their trade, if they in IT say, I would like a seat at the table for strategic decision making, right? Because that's going to give me a hand in, in exactly what you're saying there, Phil. Can I have strategic influence over prioritization, over product definition, over research and development and those kinds of things? And then a large group like United Healthcare, where I'm at now uh, through Optum, is they have product owners and product managers and hundreds of people involved in product making decisions. Uh, or product development decisions. So that the, the, the larger company structures have ways to achieve that. So it, it depends on the size of the organization and the size of the projects. Um, I guess my how question you, would be... How you approach that, right? Do, would you think you have a problem as a company if you have IT managers that are saying, can I have a seat at the table? Is that problem? Is that problematic? Mm-hmm. Like, should that I even think, exist? I think it should. I think it should be the norm. I think in IT, other words, it shouldn't be IT should not have to ask, can I have a seat at the table? In other words, we should be hiring for people that we're, we're hiring for a seat at the table and right. you well, need to have that mentality prior to, you know, a light going off in your head saying, I need a seat at the table, even though, sure. you know what I mean? And there are IT managers or IT directors and leaders that have strategic value to offer. And there are those that are more maintainers or managers of people or technologies. I was one who wanted to be more of a visionary and more impactful with my, and have more meaning in my work, more impact on the greater organization I was in at any given time, which is why entrepreneurship really makes sense for me, right? But you also need a, a, a CEO, a CFO, and, and a uh, senior management team that embraces the need for leveraging IT as a strategic uh, competitive advantage, right? So the more you have uh, the type of business, even if it's construction, like you or I uh, have an affinity for, right? You still want to have an embracing of IT, the strategic value of IT as a competitive advantage. So if I can deploy more efficient IT in my construction business or in my service business, uh, I mean, you might just be sharing CAD documents between 20 locations. Well, then you might be outperforming your competitors. You may lower costs. You may increase time to market. You may remove bidding complexity. You may make bids more accurate and more profitable. You may have less risk. You're managing risk through the impact that strategic IT decision-making can bring to the executive team. Whether or not you've got an IT executive, you can still get value from IT Insight. That's how I would word that. How do IT and sales work together? Because you mentioned VP of sales. Well, gee, I just am excited about CRM in general, Phil. It's mm. a lot of salespeople. And last year I was working with a company and there were, I suppose, 70 mm. uh, outside sales on the team. And there was mm. a culture that did not want to do CRM. And the oh, thought hold was... On, on, pause. There was a culture that did not want to do CRM. Are you saying right. old school salespeople that just want to like, you know, like, hey, they just sell? And like, they look, man, it. I'm going to forecast. Here's the deal. Like, I'm not yeah. interested this information. Right. And there's a couple different sides of that that are at odds with each other. We want to be the best in the world. We want to sell the most. We want to deliver high value for customers. We want to remember every detail about the customer, but we don't want to do this cumbersome hour or two of work a day as seen as a roadblock instead of an investment of time to be the best. Right. So I look at Salesforce and sell that. Sell that like entering, that. Sell the data. Sell the entering the data. 
So right. Injury. Well, you're, you're well, the, you know. I mean, I mean, you. Well, I do. I've been in both. I've been in both situations. Right. I've so been in situations me, where the database is is like a bunch of fake info oh, or sure. crap. Sure. I've been. Uh, so I'm like, why am why are you having me enter this information? Sure. You've got a. You've got a obviously garbage in, garbage out. Guy, go. Mm-hmm. That's a. That's a thing, right? So mm-hmm. if you want to enter data that's just from some generic, let's say you're going to sell using database. Let's just say that's the conversation. Mm-hmm. We want data going in that's highest clean as clean as we can get it so you would have a specialized role doing just the data cleansing and sourcing the data and cleaning it doing kind of a preliminary validation of the data and then entering it into your um, i prefer salesforce is where i'm at right now i like the potential for where it can go with erp and with what about email and salesforce and automation and all that stuff yeah it's all exciting stuff i mean you've got to bring the personalization together with the accountability that data tracking can provide and couple it with mobile, mobilize people on mobile devices and that are working, especially in this uh, climate we're in now where people are working from anywhere. You want that all to come together so the customer can be handed off amongst internal staff who are distributed, right? And they can not miss a beat in terms of what the customer interactions were, what uh, the opportunities are, who needs what, when, how do we hand off data, right? And so I'm looking at how do I have an appointment booking system where if I take a call like we're on, Phil, I want to be able to see that in Salesforce so that I can, uh, you know, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, right? So I want to be able to see the analytics Uh. as well, right? And the value in business decision-making is from business intelligence that comes from data-driven decision-making or business and uh, business intelligence. So Salesforce or similar tools, they introduce the ability to leverage data analytics in your sale, in your selling. Now that transforms marketing because we can sell to fewer prospects that are higher qualified, that have a higher profit per customer, per transaction, longer life of client. And so it all impacts and plays together in this happy little sphere. It takes investment. It takes education. It takes understanding the best solutions. It takes customization. It takes money. But the end result is if you're going to lead, you have to embrace using data in your selling. I have a CRM story. I have a COVID-19 CRM story. Ooh, hit me. Can't wait. <laughs> yeah. So I have, uh, I've had like just, we've got our own CRM for for conversion network services group, the company I work at, we've got our own, right? And but then, as just an individual, I play around with, with CRMs myself. And I had, and I've gone down marketing black holes and and taking Facebook advertising and Google advertising, thinking I'm gonna, you know, hit some kind of jackpot at some point with some kind of like crazy Google ad. Anyways, um, and that's really been like the black hole for me. When I say like the black hole, I have spent more money on learning marketing than the amount of money that I've made just, you know, doing what I normally do, which is voice and data consulting. But so during this COVID-19 pandemic, I had a friend call me and say, hey, um, I've got this recruiting opportunity. He's like, and I'm really good at finding the, like the companies that need to recruit, but I'm horrible at finding the candidates. Can you help me? And I had another friend that was trying to push this new CRM for me. And what is it called? It's, um, he white labels it. So I don't even, I'm trying to remember what it is. So basically it's a similar to kind of like a sale. It's, it's similar to Salesforce and a, a keep or an infusion soft kind of mixed together. If that makes any sense yeah, to you. Sure. HubSpot okay. maybe or 
Yeah. And so it automates, you know, you, you, the lead, you know, leads come in, you've got all the various different reporting that you can do, a database collection. Um, but what I liked is how it automates uh, emails, automates text messaging, automates um, uh, basically in a uh, appointment setting. It has like this really crazy, various different like engine that you can set up. So I was like, you know, whatever, like I'll help you out. Like it's a trial. Like, you know, let me see if I can help you out. If you know, I'll, th- I'll throw a couple thousand dollars at some advertising for you, you know, and if it works out, you know, give me 20% on, you know, this month and we'll be good. So I figured I'd help them out. Right. I throw up one Facebook ad and we got 700 leads in a month. And, but here's the thing with the CRM. I dumped all the leads automated into this the, all the leads they were coming in off Facebook, going to the CRM, this, this uh, CRM can like, it'll, it'll track your Facebook pixels. It'll track your Google ads. It'll track all of this stuff as the leads come in, takes all the data. Sure. What was really cool was I was like, I don't have time to do this. I've got my own work. So what I'm going to do is like, well, I was like, let's just pinpoint the exact type of candidate, which you want, which is basically a teaching position. It's like an overseas teaching position. You'd be great if you had a four-year degree, a TESOL, teaching English as a second language, basically it, right? Nothing that I am at all, um, it, you know, completely out of my, my wheelhouse, but I'll do the advertising for you and send it into this CRM thing. These 700 leads came in. I set up the whole automation through the CRM, which would be, hey, thank you for applying. Your next step is to upload your resume here. Once you upload your resume, a screening representative will screen it, and then they'll give you a call for your appointment. Please go to this calendar here and schedule your appointment. The whole thing completely automated all the way through, and uh, I think I may have overloaded him. Anyways. (laughs) short CRM story, but yeah. the, the data in and the automation of it like uh, blew me away. But here's the thing. I don't think I could have done that with the other piece of software. Right. It was this one particular, you know, it was, I, I don't, and this is, I guess the question to you is a lot of times things look very similar. There's a similar look and feel, but for some reason it doesn't work. Sure. Like you said, like the one click, like the one click sell or whatever it is. It might be like one right. little, might, might be one little tiny thing. A lot of times it's the little things that make a huge difference. And I think that has to do with who it's designed for, Phil, and, and the why. You know, Simon Sinek, is it? Is it Sinek? I can't remember his, how to pronounce his name. But the why is something he talks about a lot, which is, and the one click Amazon knew why their customers were using it. And they knew that, the real problem they needed to solve was to make it easy for a certain audience to make purchases online who preferred previously to buy in stores. So when you build a CRM tool, you have to know who you're building it around. And a lot of software development, people build or coders develop for the sake of developing or to kind of build a name for themselves or to sell to themselves. And so knowing the why you're developing or designing something is everything. For example, a project I'm working on that launches tonight is a site search project and it's designed for senior citizens. And so it has usability. It has, it knows what information it needs to show. It has speed and and device and browser compatibility geared for that specific audience. And are you telling me like it's got AOL compatibility for people? No. Well, (laughs) what are you saying? (laughs) I'm just saying that it's, that it's designed with the end user in mind very tightly. It's not developed by the standards of the development team. It's developed using experts that are focused on data analytics and on, um, 
usability and, and not usability that you or I need, but usability of 70 and 80 year olds who need their Medicare information clearly. And yeah, so when so, you design that way, the search tool you build is going to be better for the end user, not the way you or I would look at it. We would go, is this a Google or is this Bing? Is this Facebook? Is this like our metric mm-hmm, is different mm-hmm. because of who we are and our ages and our background is a little more tech. But if so you're designing, my dad's 80, my mom's 77. Yep. They need to know how to use this. And my mom locks herself out of her iPhone pretty much monthly, yep. sets it in some mode like, triple clicks something on accident or mm-hmm. opens a link, doesn't know how to open certain things just because she didn't come out of the womb on a device like we did or like mm-hmm. our kids do. Right. So you have to go ahead. What was your question? I want to know what some of the, like what were some of the key factors? Because my dad's 84, my mom's 79. And yes, right. I get called over all the time because he reset his password or something. Right. And he has so many other passwords linked on his iPad that, you know, shut down ESPN and all kinds of new Sure. I think for for the kind of team that I'm involved with, or teams multiple, um, we have specialists that are schooled in data analytics and schooled in in usability uh, and um, disability compliance. So so font size and Zoom, font size is a key thing. And and width of screen and Mm. eyesight, um, Mm. like I... Even today, I was shown something and the font size was so small and they said through the WebEx call, but you can see that, right? And I'm going, no, Mm. (laughs) I'm 47 years old. And, you know, imagine my dad who's 80, imagine how he may have to squint, right? So having people that are focused in on what the design of this tool, and I think Steve Jobs is, of course, one of my heroes in that way, where he really understood also um, who he was building for and why. The why was about designing something special to end users. So I try and bring that spirit into what I do so that it has meaningful impact on the users and so they can have an experience that's ubiquitous. They, can, they don't feel like they're using technology. They're just getting at the information without a roadblock. Without thinking about it. Right. And so to me, that's, that's design. There's design that is creative and fun and you know, has all these elaborate creative treatments, right? <laughs> Great music. I'm a musician. I love that too. I love you know, motion pictures and all that stuff. But when it comes to design, we want something I think Facebook is also close to mastering, a little bit noisy, a little bit um, of the wild west of social media in some Mm -hmm. ways in these times. But when we can have an experience like Google where we know what we're after, we, we are in there to get that data and we get at it at the data we need without Google in our way. Mm. And to me, that's meaningful IT or tech design. So when I can get at that information, I think Microsoft has also perfected it in their office tools. We want to send mail. We're not thinking, oh, I'm in Outlook right now. We just say, okay, go to your calendar and do this and add me to this and insert a WebEx meeting and, you know, let's go to Word and I want to customize this ribbon. And I'm in Excel and Excel is a way of life for many of us in in IT or in just office productivity, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't think I'm in Excel now and this is this experience that's in my way of doing my work. We think, okay, where did they, how do I insert this table? And we know what we want to do and Excel is there to enable us. And with easy search tools inside Excel or where now you can search, I want to find where this thing is or how do I do this and customize it this way. And so it's very much about enabling us without being in our way to produce the best work of our lives. And that's how it should be. That to me is my idealistic vision. So you, so you brought up a much, a much more mind blowing topic, which is 
do we get more work done now than we did 50 years ago, 200 years ago? I would say yes. What do you call work, I guess? But I don't know. Are, I just know that to send a letter, you had to put it on a, like a horse and like ride it, you know, north. <laughs> you know I mean? now, we're, now we're doing some of us hundreds of emails in a day, but for sure tens, 50, maybe 50 emails, 30 Think emails. about it, you can broadcast to like, you know, people were saying like, you know, that, that's like the other thing too with the, the COVID-19 thing, right? Like would this have really, would this lockdown have been able to happen if it happened back in 1950? I mean, it would have happened, but would we have all stayed working the way we do? Or many of us. Yeah, yeah. I was just watching something about how, in fact, it was Bill Gates talking. Today I saw he was talking about how IT companies are actually very minimally impacted by COVID-19 process. And we're actually, um, it's going to help people embrace technology sooner and easier because they have to. And so in a lot of ways, technology is the, the one sector that's, that's uh, largely unshaken because you know, we're already working remote. We already have connectivity. We have fiber optic. Many of us are high performance uh, cable. It didn't my life at all. No, I mean, I, I mean, it did have, from a standpoint of other people's lives that are affected that it's going to be a ripple effect Like I, from right. that standpoint. But from right. I'm still sitting in the same office with multiple screens and a computer, same microphone. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids, uh, you know, they were homeschooled before, so that was... Right. Uh, it affected my grocery behavior. It affected how often I go. It affected less gas usage, and, and I can work in sweatpants and a casual shirt now. Yeah, I mean, I, I take a shower that. before work now, and that's a little more how it affects me. But in terms of <laughs> workflow, we're still, in fact, we didn't... At Optum, we didn't miss a blink. We One day we were at in Eden Prairie working. The next day we're in our homes, and the code didn't... didn't I mean, I bet we suffered a little bit in overall productivity, because we're all stressed, we're all a little bit worried about our loved ones. Yeah, but I would yeah. say mostly, like 90%, right? 95% even, I'd argue, we are achieving results even though we're working remote. And what I want to do, Phil, is help other people get that same experience, like in their small business, their little construction company, their yep. big construction company. Yep. I want them to be able to know sort of intrinsically how to use IT and remote work technology and firewall technology and mobile device technology so that they can more accountably do that same kind of data-driven work we were talking about with the Salesforce or CRM discussion, bringing that into mobile workforces that are out in the field at construction sites or having uh, project management and estimator teams that are having to work from home all of a sudden where the office or the business tooled up more for an office environment, not a remote workforce environment, which is a totally different um, network architecture, right? Yeah, there's people that were, there was, there was companies were hit hard. Certainly the cost center guys, certainly the, the IT guys that were stuck in a cost center with old 1970s PBXs and machines and old networking equipment or whatever it is, legacy, anything. Sure. Uh, they, they got hit hard. Sure. But uh, I bet your cloud phone stuff, I bet you're just like, oh, we're, we're just connecting from home now. Blinkity blink, my extension's live, right? It wasn't any different. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I've like, really advocated for that kind of solution at a, at a different company I was uh, working at last year, where it was about moving 230 users to uh, voice over IP technology without a PBX. Yeah. And it was a tough sell because of the, the, the culture. Price? Well, yeah. it wasn't really price. Um, it was culture. It was, I mean, we're you, you just committed don't buy to this PBX older, anymore. well, it had to yeah. do with switches at multiple locations and VPNs. some. some and, an, and a managed service provider that's selling uh, uh, this or that person a certain strategic path more than it uh, had to do with what made a better solution. Because I believe that cloud phone, 
managed phone is just a better solution. It is Specifically now. because you pick up your handset, <laughs> you go plug in from home, or I'm not even using a handset. I have a USB headset I'm on talking to you right now through my little yeah, laptop and zoom and zoom through zoom we're talking right yeah me too and uh not only that i mean obviously there's endless reasons redundancy you know if you've got old pbx's with vpns connecting site to site you have weird extension dialing between sites and right. you've got to have people vpn and then remote users and soft phones are much more clunky on it can be the older pbx it stuff. can be but some in, in addition to that the objections i heard were like uh you know but but our connectivity isn't the same as it would be here, or we have to standardize this. Well, any of <laughs> us that work from home have to have connectivity to stream Netflix. You need connectivity, right? Yeah, most people don't have phone. DSL anymore. I mean, let's right, be honest. Most right. people and don't so, have DSL. But decision makers at the leadership team level, Phil, are still thinking 20 years ago in many ways, and I think you can relate, right? Yeah, These, I mean, I could go on all day long, and, and I don't right. know to be about... Uh, as no, much it's not about bashing that, but it's really about helping people no, I mean, that I are would, looking at things 20 years ago and saying, hey, we'll hold your hand and help you across this little bridge of yeah. understanding so that you can see yeah. how it's really a cost savings because we haven't even factored in productivity gain, Work yeah. loss, waste, yeah. uh, lack of reliability, work from home, all these other things where when you factor all that kind of a work, uh, work style into it, yeah. into the oh. equation, you all of a sudden go, wait a minute, why do we have these handsets and this old switching technology? I mean, you can pop up a new location anywhere in the world, literally. With Star- cloud phone technology. Tell people all the time, Starbucks. Without a lease. Russia. Without a lease. Boom. <laughs> I, I was talking to a guy in Croatia who's a phone consultant uh, for sales. And he's a rock star. And you would have never known he was in Croatia. He said, I was in New Zealand before this. And I was yeah. over there in Brazil. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh. I've been I was doing in, this wrong. Uh, I was in Cairo earlier this year, back in November. No one knew wow. if I didn't tell him. Right, uh, right. Like, you know, and, and, and the internet there is not that great. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I have no problem bashing the old PBX mentality at all. I just right. want to make this as no, as, absolutely. I, and I don't to want to bash the telecom people, show. I will tell, no. I will make this a telecom show if you want me to. Well, we but what we're talk talking about. about is cloud technology, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I was building a business continuity solution with Zerto. Have you heard of Zerto? Uh, Zerto is a cloud to cloud replication technology platform. And it's very cool because we had 40 plus servers that we needed to replicate and the business had ERP and exchange and uh, domain controllers and file servers and print servers and on and on 40 plus servers that are all virtual machines sitting on VMware. And they, the argument was we, we need backup. And so a solution was presented by the managed service provider um, to back up that data using about a $30,000 tech stack, some, some server gear placed yeah. on a on a Comcast business line which isn't fast enough. Basically some old, an old school an old school the way we kind used of to- an old school it was really about data backup and I introduced the concept of business continuity. Mm-hmm. And that was a new concept for the company and what we talked in, and it was my brother who's an IBMer that gave me the name Zerto and Zerto is a technology that at the block level of disk replicates virtual machines across a dedicated line between your primary location and a, and a dedicated a data center environment, right? And then so you deploy either in a public cloud, like an Amazon AWS or Google, or in our case, we used to deploy our own private cloud. Yep. So we had our own tech stack because we wanted that level of security. So we found a data center that had that merit that could give us the connectivity and the, the security we needed. And we housed our servers there and we used Zerto to replicate these machines. And we would, you know, the goal was 
in two hours or less spin up all 40 servers in the event that the home office blew up by a tragedy yeah. or had you to shut down because of a rebuilding as opposed to rebuilding and all kinds of other stuff. Right. So your data is always only, and we could go back eight seconds before a disaster fell hmm. and spin up the exchange server from there. So if you had a ransomware attack, you just spin up a new VM and go do to do. We have exchange, hmm. right? Or you would spin up your ERP from a different location. And yes, there are networking complexities, but we got it down to about an hour and a half for 40 servers accessible from another location in our testing. So that's a project that I'm really proud of because it's insulation against disaster. And so many small businesses aren't thinking that way. They're thinking, well, our data is backed up on a, on a PC somewhere. And if their business blew up tomorrow or caught on fire or some other disaster, they would not be able to stay in business. And so for this company last year, the use case was if our ERP is down for a week, we're out of business because yeah. it's our point of sale. It's Ransom our accounting. Attack, any number of things. Are any number of things. And their competitors are just right there ready to pick up that business. So being mm-hmm. able to stay live or get live within the same day or the next day mm-hmm. was critical to being a leader in that space. Mm-hmm. So that was a really fun project that was challenging and was rewarding because Zerto is just amazing technology to work with. And you feel like you're playing at a level when you're using a, a cloud-to-cloud replication technology. It's not just data backup. You're literally continuity of, of business, right? So you can function. You're insulated from a lot of risk. It's pretty well, I'm cool. glad you said it. They, um, <laughs> so, hey, if you had any one message to, to deliver out there, because again, a, a lot of times I get, you know, you got to have MBA, you got to have certifications, clearly not the case for you. But if you had any one message uh, to deliver out there to other other IT directors, up and comers out there, you know, what would that be? Any, any special, any special knowledge piece of info? You know, I'm really about passion and vision and about creating something special for end users. And I know that's idealistic and maybe, um, you know, poetic or cheesy maybe, but not to really. Me, Cause I think it's the name of the game, you know? Well, I think one click by Amazon or an iPhone or the one button this or the, how ubiquitous Google is to use. I think these came from spirit in humans that could say, I want to design something special that users connect with. And I want to change. It's that why it's, why am I building this tool? Why do I want to learn code? Why do I want to work at this company? Why do I want to build a search tool? Mm-hmm. Right. I want to do it for some greater meaning and not something just purely esoteric, but something that impacts lives in a very real and tangible way. So I want to help the small business compete with the big boys on a shoestring, or I want to help seniors do this or help my mom be healthier or finding that real meaning of why you're doing it. And then Mm. just going like mad to do that and not giving up no matter what, don't let anything stand in your way. Just go and you can do anything you want. Just have to believe you can. Said perfectly. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much, Phil.